Good morning. It's uh, good to see you guys here this morning, and uh, my name is John, the lead pastor here at Grace. Um, I got Johnny, uh, who's our worship leader, and I got to spend, and my wife uh, got to spend the last couple days we were out over, over in Aurora at Living Hope Bible Church, um, one of our sister churches with Converge. Converge is kind of like our denomination, sort of, and uh, so we had kind of our, our, our one of our meetings, yearly meetings and things, uh, the last two days, and and the Living Hope Bible Church is a great church. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a totally different culture. It was it was the the pastor and, and the congregation there's there's primarily African American. And I got to tell you, I was there, and there was a lot of like audience participation. <laughs> and so what I'm saying is this: that should you desire, especially on a day when we all lost an hour of sleep last night. You know, I, me too, right? Like, I don't know about you. You probably maybe didn't get up as early as I did. It was still dark when I got up, right? And so, you know, I'm a little tired. And so, you know, if you feel the urge to throw in an, a, a, a well-timed, you know, amen, or yes, or preach it or something, you know, if you see me getting a little tired up here, you know, a little preach it would be good. You can kind of I'm not holding my breath, but uh, but you would be welcome to do so. And I know there's a few of you that kind of I know there's a few of you that hold back a little bit because you think you think uh, you're not supposed to do that here or something. But that's actually not really true. Just so you know, uh, that's very much uh, welcomed. Uh, hey, let's uh, let's pray before we dig into God's word this morning. Dear God, you are good. You are gracious. You are holy. You are worthy of our worship, Lord. I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that he came to this earth, that he shed his blood, that he died on the cross, that he went to the grave. Lord, I praise you that he rose on the third day, providing life eternal, that we too might rise again. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present here with us this morning, that your Holy Spirit would empower our minds to understand well what you would have for us from your word, but also encourage our hearts to embrace fully what you have for us. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is uh, Put Your Money Where Your Mouth Is. And uh, I, don't, I don't often like advertise the titles, but, the, but uh, I am this morning. It's, it's an interesting saying. It's been around. Um, it actually became populi- popularized early 20th century and, and became pretty well known kind of after, world, after uh, um, world War I, I believe it was. Uh, later, uh, it, it, the UK would use it as an advertising slogan. In 1975, they wanted their people to put their money in the national bank, so they, you know, the, so they're like, "Hey, you believe in us? You know, put your money where your mouth is," kind of thing. And of course, now we say it, and we say it primarily because money means something to us, right? So, so somebody says something, they say something audacious, or they say something that we don't believe, or or they say they can accomplish something, and then we tell them what? Put your Put your money where your mouth is. Why? Because we want them to back it up with something valuable that they might hold dear, right? And so, so we'll say that, and it's, it's kind of a saying that says, hey, if you really believe in this, get behind it in some significant way. And that's kind of where that comes from. And so put your money where your mouth is. To many of us, money is, um, you know, however you view it, maybe you think it's a necessary evil. I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you uh, enjoy it and enjoy the privileges that it grants you, and there's certainly nothing 
nothing wrong with understanding the value of money, and there is a value to it. It represents many things, hard work. It represents a lot of things, value in other ways. And, uh, and, it, and, and so it's important to you, and maybe, maybe unless your name's Bloomberg, then you just throw up $500 million and hang out in the presidential race and then, and then take off. I don't know. You know but he, he doesn't, maybe value money isn't that important to him, but, uh, but it's important to a lot of us. And so today's sermon is not actually going to be about money, per se, it's not, that's not the point of today's sermon, but Jesus talks about it, Matthew chapter 25, where we're going to be this morning, and as we continue the series, the final days of Jesus, uh, we're still on Tuesday of Holy Week, and so we're kind of working our way up to Easter, and so it's Tuesday, so Sunday what happened was, was Palm Sunday, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks here, you know, the, everybody welcomes Jesus in as, as a king, and they welcome him as a king on Sunday, and then Monday, he, uh, there's a story about him cursing the fig tree, and, and, uh, and he goes and he turns the money changers' tables over and kind of causes some, some stirs things up in the temple. And then Tuesday hits, and he does a lot of teaching on Tuesday. And so, and so even though last week's message happened on Tuesday of that week for Jesus, so does today's as he continues. And he tells a couple of parables, and one of them is going to be about money. And money is really a central issue to us. I mean, that's why we argue about minimum wage laws and taxes and, and what should be free and what shouldn't be free and, and, and all of those kinds of things. All of those things matter to us in, in our society. And perhaps that is why these parables are so powerful. And the parable of the talents or the bags of gold or the bags of money is one of the best-known parables that Jesus tells. Last week, the big idea was li- live like Jesus is coming back today, but be prepared for eternity. And we don't know when Jesus is going to come back, and, and we really shouldn't even try to figure it out. And he not only emphasized that in last week's passage, but also mentions that this week as well. But he continues to teach about the kingdom of God by telling two stories, two parables, to illustrate what we should do as we await the return of Jesus and his kingdom And yet this is a few days before he will go to the cross. And even as he tells these stories today and preparing the disciples for what they're about to experience, he is still focusing their eyes beyond what will happen on that weekend and off into eternity and focusing them on the kingdom of God. The first story or parable Jesus tells is about ten virgins, five who are foolish and five who are wise. And the foolish ones learn this lesson. They learn that the pride of presumption is a lack of ownership. The pride of presumption is a lack of ownership. You know, when I get to do weddings, and uh, my wife gets kind of excited when I get to do weddings, it's, it's not so much because I'm doing a wedding, and, and uh, she, she really does love uh, going to weddings and love what that represents in a lot of ways, but, um, and, she, and she very often loves the people who are getting married. I say very often, like there's an exception. There really isn't, but uh, she loves the people who are getting married, to my knowledge, all of the time, okay? <laughs> but that's not why she really gets excited. She gets excited because when, when we go to weddings, most of the time, there's a dance. And even before we arrive, she's like, she asked me a question. She's, and usually even like before we arrive at the rehearsal dinner the night before or something like that, she'll, are you going to dance with me tomorrow night? That's her question. <laughs> now you need to understand something, that dancing in our relationship is not necessarily a positive thing, okay? It has a history, 
It, ha- it has a history, and, and when we dance, um, you know, there's kind of this weird confusion that I have, and I can't quite figure it out, and I don't think she can figure it out either, and it's caused probably more, more arguments than anything else, because she wants me to lead, but she doesn't want me to lead, if you know what I'm saying. Like she's, well, just lead me, and I'm like, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about her or me. I'm, I'm just kind of making observations here, but she wants to dance with me. She's always excited about dance with me, dancing with me at the reception, but it's really not that kind of dancing. If there's a lot of movement involved, uh, you know, she's probably not that excited about it. As a matter of fact, if, if I go, hey, let's go dance this one, and it's more upbeat, she's like, really? You know, so she wants to dance with me, but like, she doesn't want to dance with me. <laughs> it's very confusing. But she's more like, let's, let's do, there's one particular dance she wants to do, and, and, and it's more of a, she's always, you know, wants to do the slow dances, and, you know, and, and I, I've learned, if nothing else, I learned from the movie Hitch that you're always safer right here. Is this okay that I'm dancing on stage? I don't know if that's okay or not, but, right, like, this is, this is where you want to stay, right here, right, if you've seen the movie Hitch. That's it, you know, none of this stuff, and, you know, not, not, don't do that, just right here, right? She wants to do one specific dance, and it's called the anniversary dance. You guys know the dance? The anniversary dance. The anniversary dance goes like this. So the DJ will bring, he'll say, if you're married, come out onto the floor, and, uh, and or we're going to dance, and then he'll play some song, and it's always a slow song, so you're kind of, you know, doing the slow dance and, and all that kind of, she follows really well during that, and uh, probably not because of my leadership, I'm sure, but anyways, um, and, and but we, we, so we dance, and then, the, and then after like a minute maybe, or 30 seconds usually, the DJ will go, all right, if you've been married less than a year, go sit down. And then, and then it's, okay, if a minute goes by. Okay, if you've been married less than five years, go sit down. The idea is this, that as it goes on, and so five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, then each, each, each of those anniversaries, if you've been married shorter than that, you go sit down. And so, and so by the time you get to the end, you know, there's usually a couple or two or three that are like, you know, 40 years, and they end up like 41, 42, you know, trying to really get down to the one couple who's been married the longest, and she loves that dance, and, and, and I like it too. Uh, but I like it because of this. I like it because it, it's kind of a witness, if you will, of couples who have been married a long time and, and, they, and, and love each other, and it's, and it's a witness to me, and it encourages my heart because it tells me that there is, there is there's reason to believe that our love can grow and be nourished and can last, and our marriage can last, and undoubtedly they've experienced difficult things, and it's an encouragement, and weddings are are such a great time for that, not only for the couple getting married, but for the couples who have been married a long time to to give witness that marriage is good, and and that even though there's hard times, marriage can last. Well, in the days of Jesus, they didn't have the anniversary dance that I know of, couldn't find it in all the literature that I looked at. There was no anniversary dance, but they do definitely dance. And Jesus tells this story, a parable about a wedding. And there would often be dancing, and, and they were, you know, likely a lot more free to dance than at least many of us would be. And, and Jesus tells the story of, about these virgins, and they would go out, and they would meet the bridegroom, and they would escort him back to the banquet. And in those days, weddings would take days, often to celebrate. And, and part, of that, part of that was often the groom would go and maybe spend time with the bride's family. I don't know, maybe he was, you know, negotiating the, uh, 
the, the dowry or, or, or whatever and, and figuring out, you know, how that all is going to work. And, and he would spend time with the bride's family. And then he would come back to his place and, th- and there would be a party and there would be a celebration. And, and, and these virgins that Jesus talks about, if you will, you might think of them as the wedding party in some sense. And oftentimes the groom might come back late at night and so they would often have lamps to light the path to escort and often dance as they returned to the groom's uh, place of residence where they would be having the banquet. Well, the story Jesus shares are ten virgins awaiting the arrival of the groom. And here's how the text reads, starting in Matthew chapter 25, verse 2. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you, instead, Go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with them to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the Excuse me, you do not know the day or the hour. In the the parable, as Jesus tells it, he is the bridegroom. And the wedding party is waiting his his arrival, his return, so that they could escort him back to the the banquet, and they could celebrate, and they could have a great party, and, and it would be wonderful, and there would be dancing and music and all kinds of things, and it would be a great and a wonderful time. But there were wise virgins, as the text says, which, which is just referring to their age, their unmarried, you know, marrying age, and, and they were ready to, you know, to, to, to be of that age, and they would escort him back, and it would be a great celebration. There are five wise ones and five foolish ones. Now, as you look at the text, there's really not a lot of difference, at least initially, between the two. They all show up. They're all excited about the wedding. They all want to be part of the celebration. They all want to escort the groom back to where the party is. They all come prepared with lamps, right? And they're, and, and they're ready because they know that when it gets dark, we're going to have to have some light, maybe their torches kind, kind of lamps, and they would escort them back. And then they all get tired of waiting. And so the groom is delayed, the bridegroom is delayed, and so they all get tired of waiting. And all ten, five, the five foolish and the five wise, they all fall asleep. And they're all woken up to the call. That says, hey, he's, he's arrived, and it's time to go out and to meet the bridegroom. But that's where things start to get a little bit different. Some were ready for the possibility that the groom was going to be delayed, and some weren't. That's really the, the significant difference between the wise and the foolish here. The oil doesn't have any, I don't think, any significant representation. We're not, we're not supposed to try to figure out what the oil symbolizes. What it symbolizes is lighting a lamp. That's what it is. It's about lighting a lamp and, and being prepared for that moment. And the five foolish 
Virgins were, were not prepared. They were not ready that there might be a delay, that he might come late. They only brought enough for that he would come back at, at, at the time that they expected. And they weren't prepared for it to be any longer. And the five wise were. They, they brought extra oil so that they would be prepared. So that if you were delayed, and you, if you've been camping, you kind of know how it goes. That sometimes even, even if you go to sleep, you might have to, you know, if you're out camping or whatever, get up, go to the bathroom, you might need your flashlight, right? So you might turn it on. And, and who knows what, what the oil was used for, but those kinds of things. And for, and, and for whatever reason, they did not have enough when the time came, when the bridegroom actually showed up. They did not have enough. And so what did they do? They asked the others to give them oil, and the answer was no, because there won't be enough for me either. Now here's where this whole idea of the pride of of presumption is a lack of ownership comes from. A lot of times what happens is people will go through life, and they, and they, they think that they can kind of take care of their spiritual life later, or they, or they begin to believe that, that there's other things that are important that they want to live in a particular way, and that someday down the road I can get serious about my spiritual life. But as you read Matthew chapter 24, which we went over last week, and, and there's kind of this idea, there's some hints in there that it seems like Jesus is, might, be coming, might be returning to set up his kingdom soon, right? The disciples certainly believed that. And then you turn the page to Matthew chapter 25, and, and, the, and the first two parables, the one we're talking about right now, the one we'll talk about in a minute, both have this idea of delay. In other words, it could be a long time. In other words, it, it, it seems like Jesus, as he is teaching, is giving kind of this vague idea, probably on purpose, of going, hey, look, it could be soon, it could be a long time. You're not really supposed to try to figure out when Jesus is coming back, so stop doing that. That's emphasized not only in Matthew chapter 24 a couple of times, but also in today's text. Stop trying to figure it out. It could be soon, or it could be delayed. It could be a long time. And of course, we know Jesus said on a couple of occasions that even he does not know the time or the date. And so don't try to figure it out, but be ready. But there's a pride of presumption that we often have. And we often come to these places and the pride of presumption looks like this. We presume that either God is not who he presents himself as in scripture, he is some other God, or we presume that we can manipulate God or that we can kind of create God in our image rather than recognizing that we were created in his image. And so we create our view of God and we say things like, if God was really loving, then he would He would. I don't know, maybe let everybody into the eternal kingdom. Or maybe if God was really good, if he was really loving, if he was really the way I think he ought to be, then I can take care of my spiritual life later. He won't really hold me accountable for being prepared. There's a pride of presumption. And that's what happens with, these, with the foolish virgins, right? They go, and they're, they're waiting. The time comes. The bridegroom is there. They're going to escort him back. And all of a sudden, they go, oh, no, we don't have enough oil. So they had this pride presumption, and they presumed that they could t- get oil from the other virgins, the wise virgins, and that, that somehow they had a right to that, and then they would be all, all okay. But they were wrong, weren't they? They had a pride of presumption because they, they failed to own their own responsibility to be prepared. 
They failed to own their own responsibility to be prepared. The pride of presumption leads to a lack of ownership. Here's the reality. What's interesting about the text is as it reads, not only do they go and they say to the other, the wise virgins, they say, hey, can you help us out? Can you give us some oil? But what do the wise virgins say? They go, well, no, we can't. Why? Because if we give some to you, then nobody has enough. Right? In other words, you're responsible to take care of you in this respect. And you didn't. And that's a problem. And there was a pride and a presumption that fueled that. And you didn't, they didn't take ownership of their own situation. It's interesting that Jesus is telling these parables that focuses the eyes of the disciples on the eternal kingdom, on the new heavens and new earth, what is to come far beyond what is about to happen that weekend when Jesus goes to the cross. And he's focusing their eyes on, on what is eternal and, and the kingdom that, that is to come. He's preparing them. So that when the time comes, when he dies, when he rises, when he ascends to the Father, that they will be ready for what is to come. The question that I have for you is, are you ready for Jesus to return? Have you taken on the ownership of being prepared for Jesus' return? He could come at any time. It could be this afternoon. It could be 2,000 years from now. I'm going to heed Matthew 24 and Matthew 25's advice and not try to figure it out exactly. I'm going to heed that advice, that admonishment. I'm not going to try to figure that out, but we should ask the question, are you ready? Because it could happen at any time. Do you know him? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you accepted the gift of salvation? Are you prepared for him to return? Preparation is a relationship with Jesus. It's, it's a following of Jesus. It's not, are you prepared in, in the sense that, have I added enough good deeds or good things, or, or am I a good enough person that I, that I have offset all the bad things I've done? That's not what it means to be prepared. What it means to be prepared is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and receive his forgiveness that is given to you freely. As a matter of fact, the more you try to earn it, the more enslaved you become. (laughs) We can't earn our salvation. God's grace is given to us freely. Sometimes people put off following Jesus as if they can just take care of it on their deathbed or at the last minute or later in life. But you don't know when that day comes. And neither do I. As a matter of fact, that's kind of the point, isn't it? The foolish virgins were going to take care of it at the last second. And instead of being able to take care of it, they weren't able to take care of it. They were kept out of the celebration. The doors were closed and locked. And when they came to enter, they said, he let us enter. And and, And he said, I do not know you. We need to take care of our spiritual life now. You are responsible for your readiness for Christ's return. You, not the person next to you, not somebody else, not your mom, not your dad, not not a friend. You are responsible for your readiness for Christ's return. The pride of presumption is a lack of ownership. Take ownership. The principle can be applied to lots of things in life, but it certainly applies to our readiness and the return of Christ. 
That's why we talk about Jesus all the time. That's why we're constantly saying the eternal divine son of God came down. He took on human flesh. He went to the cross. He sacrificed himself. He bled. He satisfied God's justice and God's righteousness so that we could receive his righteousness, not earn it on our own, but receive the righteousness that comes from Jesus. And he rose again so that sin and death would be conquered, so that we can look to eternal life. That's why we talk about that all the time. We're relentless in proclaiming that. It was one thing to be prepared. But what do you do now? Let's just say you're ready, you're prepared, I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but I'm kind of in this between period, right? Jesus came the first time, right? He, he went to the cross, he, re- he resurrected from the dead, he ascended to be with the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. Well, now we live kind of in this between time, we're looking forward to that second coming, to that time when he will come again. So what do we do now? What are we supposed to do in this time until he comes? preparation would take on a different aspect in the next story that Jesus tells. And I think one of the things we get from that story is this, that preparation equals patient persistence. Preparation equals patient persistence. It's another aspect to readiness, if you will, that Jesus wanted to drive home. So he tells another story. He tells this story that's commonly known, and it's one of the best-known stories or parables that Jesus tells. It's called the parable of the talents. Sometimes it's called the parable of the money uh, bags or, or the bags of gold or something like that. It's probably most commonly referred to as the parable of the talents. And the, and the story basically goes like this. There's a, there's a wealthy guy, business owner, and he has some, some servants or, or employees, and he, and he comes to him and he says, look, I'm going on a business trip. Maybe he's going to go start another business in another town. I don't, I don't know what his trip is, but he's, he's going on a trip. Maybe he's going on vacation, but he's going somewhere, and he's, and he's leaving, and he's got these financial um, needs some things that need to be taken care of while he's gone and so he he comes to his most trusted uh servants his employees and says look i'm going to give you i'm going to give you five talents or bags of gold i'm going to give you two and i'm going to give you one and probably it's based on competence right he thinks this one's really done a good job trustworthy been with me a long time maybe and he, and he says i really trust that one. i'm going to give that one five this one you know still trust him but two and this one maybe this is a newbie or a new guy or something like that i'm just going to give him one because i don't want to risk too much but he gives these these differing amounts to these servants and he goes on his trip and they go about doing their thing doing doing whatever it is they perceive they're supposed to do and and there comes a time in verse 19 where where the guys are turning and this is how the text reads it says this after a long time the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them now notice the language here after what a long time he'd been gone a long time and there's a contrast in the previous story that jesus told and this one and i've mentioned this with what we see in chapter 24 there seems to be this this it could be soon it could be later we don't really know and 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 god i think is intentionally being vague and saying don't try to figure it out he didn't want to give us a date for our own good but it's been a long time and so so he returns and it's time to settle the accounts and just like when, you know, if a businessman were to do that today and he were to leave, maybe he was going to be out of touch for some reason and uh, he entrusts his employees to do the, the things that they need to do to take care of the business, to take care of his, his, his wealth. It, it, it's, it's a good business principle as you 
create some well, to use that well to do more work than you could do on your own and, and to spread that out and to diversify and all those kinds of things. And so that's kind of what's happening. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's preparing them because he's going to go be with the Father and it could be a while and he's going to return and there will be a settling of, of accounts of sorts. And so he's going to return. And he's given both to the church and us as individual all kinds of things. He's given us finances, he's given us talent, he's given us skill, he's given us time, he's given us all kinds of resources. And as we look at this, oftentimes we think about this as a parable about money, or we think about it because of the word talent, talent which really has nothing to do with our common word talents, as, as something about gifts and abilities that we have. And really it includes both and a lot of other things. In other words, God has given you resources. You have resources, you have skills and abilities, you have spiritual gifts, you have time, you have finances, you have other things that are at your disposal, if you will. You have all of these resources, and there's going to come a time, Jesus will come back and he will settle the account. And so Jesus, or the businessman, comes back, and here's how it reads, starting in verse 20. It says, the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I put you in charge of, I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came and and he said, master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. I love this part of the story. It's going well, right? Everything's going good. The servants have done a good job. They've invested wisely. They've doubled their money. I can't, where do you get that investment strategy, by the way, right? Like, can that not be included? 100%, man, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. 100%. So he comes back, and he's settling the account, and, and, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy, or participate in your, your master's happiness. Things are going super, super good. Here's the reality that we need to realize. That everything we have belongs to God. Just like everything those servants had belonged to the master. So your talent, your skill, your finances your time, your degrees, your business, your ambitions, all of it belongs to God. Those are the resources God has given to you. You and I are to steward those resources. But they belong to him. It all belongs to God. And we will give an account to how we have used those things. And we're to use those things for the kingdom of God. The question is, when we stand before God, will we receive the same response that these first two servants received? Will we stand before God, we say, here's all that you have given me, and, and i got to be honest with you, I, I, I can look at my resources in my life so far, and I go, yep, made some mistakes. I haven't done it all right. Everybody stands in that spot, don't they? 
We all do. The question is, not, the point is not to feel guilt or shame or anything about that, about the past. The question is, what will I do now to steward those resources now, moving forward, hoping and seeking and striving so that when I stand before God and answer for the resources that he's given me, I will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we strive for. Will God look at us and say those words? I wish I didn't have to talk about the third servant, but it's in the text, and I do. What did the third servant do? He was given one, right? One bag of gold or, gold or talent, and, that, and he, he went out, and he what? What did he do? He buried it, right? He buried it. He took what he had, and he buried it. He didn't do anything with it. And I was thinking about this, and what, what might this be like today? And this is, this, is, this is what I think this might be like. So let's say the Broncos... The Denver Broncos, let's say they went out and they drafted the best quarterback in the draft. Okay, this is fantasy, all right? Like, don't get your hopes up, all right? I mean, just, this is, I'm not prophesying here, okay? But let's say the Broncos go out, they draft the very best quarterback in the draft. I mean, he's got a strong arm. He runs a 4 3 five, 40. He can bench press whatever it is, 225 pounds, like, I don't know, 25 times, I don't know, what, I don't know what the numbers are, but whatever it is, like he's, he's strong, he's six foot five, so he can see over the line, he has a history of reading defenses really, really well, he's super talented, he's got all the right skills, and the Broncos look at this guy and go, man, we're, we're trading up, we're selling the farm to get that guy, we're going to get that guy, they trade up, they draft him, they bring him into camp, it's the fall of 2020, and, and, and he's in camp, and and, and the preseason games come along, and they say, you know what? He's really talented. He's really, really good. So we want to protect him. We want to keep him safe. So we're not going to play him in the preseason games. We're not going to play him. He's too valuable because we don't want him to get what? Hurt, right? We don't want him to get hurt because then our resource is gone. And so they sit him. Of course, he goes through training camp, and the first regular season game comes, and, 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 and they just kind of look, man, uh, we, we're, we're nervous. We don't want him to get hurt. I mean, what if he were, what if he were to blow out his knee or something or, or, or whatever? We, we want to keep him safe, and besides, he's a rookie. He's a rookie, and how, could he really help us win at this point? As a matter of fact, this is done all the time in the NFL teams, right? In the regular season, a first-year quarterback, they'll set him, let, let a veteran guy play so that the, the rookie can learn. And so they sit him, and they do that, and they do it the whole season. Why? Because they don't want him to get what? Hurt, right? They don't want him to get hurt. Season two rolls around. Spring, or spring training. See, my mind's on baseball right now. <laughs> right? Camp comes around. They sit him. All the preseason games. Why? Because they don't want him to get what? They don't want him to get hurt. Season two, they sit him the whole year. So now he's gone two seasons. They haven't played him because they don't want him to get hurt. Why? Because their resource could be damaged. In other words, they're burying their resource. In other words, if, if the whole objective is to keep him from getting hurt, if that's the goal, then they've succeeded, right? But if their goal is to win games, to win Super Bowls, to build a dynasty, if that's their goal... They've completely failed, haven't they? Because they were unwilling to use the resources they were giving. That's exactly what this third ser servant did. He went and he buried it. And the master came back and he settled the account. And the man came to him, the servant came to him and said, I know you are a harsh 
master. You're, you're, you're a harsh boss. I know that you reap where you do not sow. I know that you want to get the most out of everything. And I was scared. I was nervous because, of, because your standards are so high in regards to, in, in regards to what I did. And, I, and you wanted, I know you wanted to make money, and I was scared that I would lose money, so I buried it. Now, here's the thing. A lot, I think a lot of times we read the text, and we just assume that that is an accurate description of God, but that's not actually an accurate description of God, is it? It doesn't say anything about God's grace or God's mercy or God's kindness. And we know those from many texts throughout Scripture that God is those things as well. It kind of creates a caricature of God because of the perception that the servant had. It would have been a common perception in first century Judaism. And quite frankly, it's a common perception today for many people. They look at God and he's harsh and he's demanding and he's mean-spirited and he's all of these things. And they mischaracterize him. But then the, the master comes back and he says, or, or, or the, the, the guy says to the master, he says, Master, I said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground and see here's what, is, what belongs to you. But the, his response, verse 28, is, is important. And he says this, So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ouch. Ouch. Harsh words, isn't it? Now here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's responding as if he were the caricature that was created. In other words, you say I'm a hard boss, and yet you still didn't do anything. I mean, it would make sense that, that even if I was this hard boss, if I was the way you described me, even in that case, you should have done something. You should have used the resources I gave you while I was gone. I mean, this isn't better. This is worse. Even if your caricature was true. But the other servants were patient but persistent, the first two servants. In other words, they were preparing all along for the return of the master. They were ready when he came back. They were ready to answer, to, to bring to account what they had done. And they were ready, having used the resources that they had been given. Preparation, preparation isn't about saying a prayer or getting some kind of fire insurance. It's not about avoiding hell. It's about patient persistence. Patient is directed towards God knowing that his timing is perfect. Persistence is constantly using the resources that God has given us for the sake of his kingdom because we are stewards of what he has given us. It doesn't really belong to us. So if your gift is picking up trash, do it for the kingdom. If you're a doctor, do it for the kingdom. If you're an engineer, do it for the kingdom. If, you're a, a, if you are compassionate, use it for the kingdom. If you have a, a gift and a skill of writing, use it for the kingdom. If you are a parent, use it for the kingdom. 
Whatever your gift is, whatever your talent is, whatever your time you have, use it for the kingdom. And don't be afraid of failure. As a matter of fact, I would suggest this, that the text kind of tells us, look, if you just bury it and don't use it, that's worse than if you were to just fail big. So fail big. Use whatever it is. Fail huge. God is a God of grace. He's a God of kindness. You know what he's going to do? He's going to use that for his kingdom. You have no idea how many times when I'm driving here in the morning, and it's usually at least dim outside. It was really dark this morning. And I was driving, and I, and I pray, and, he, and he, one of the things I commonly pray, pray is this. God, use me in spite of me. Use me in spite of me, because I am messed up just like you all are. And if you didn't think you were, just ask me. I'll tell you about it, okay? <laughs> Use me in spite of me. I'm just, God, I'm, I'm going to try to be faithful with what I got. And sometimes, quite frankly, I'm more faithful than others, amen? I try to be as faithful as I can be, but sometimes I'm better at being faithful and sometimes I'm not as good at being faithful with what he's given me. But I'm going to fail big, I'm going to use what I have, whatever it is. I'm going to fail big. I'm going to go huge, and then, and then God's going to come. And, and one thing he's not going to say to me is, John, you buried it. He's not going to say that. He might say, that was a nice try. He might say that. But I'm better with that than I am with, John, you buried it. Prideful presumption leads to rejection. But real readiness leads to redemption. The five foolish virgins, they learned that first part, didn't they? Prideful presumption leads to rejection. But real readiness leads to redemption. When they were patient, and that was a persistent patience, they were prepared when Jesus would return, when the master came back. We can't make some kind of last-minute alteration and think that God is going to honor that when we know better. Prideful presumption leads to rejection. Instead, we need to be ready for Jesus. Being ready isn't the same as being perfect. We are called to work for the sake of the kingdom. God doesn't call us to just, just to do good things that we can do. He uses our failures. He uses our missteps, our mess-ups, our tragedies, and everything else we have. And he redeems every part of our life for his sake. J.C. Ryle talks about these two parables, and, and he sums them up this way. He says, the story of the virgins calls, calls on the church to watch. The story of the talents calls on the church to work. So what's it going to be? Are you going to hope things work out, or are you going to be like the wise virgin, virgins and be ready? Are you going to be ready for that accounting? Are you going to be prepared? Here's what I want you to do, maybe this afternoon. I want you to sit down. Maybe you grab a piece of paper, a journal, maybe something like that. Just take, it doesn't take that long. Just take a little time and begin to write down the resources that God has given you. Just write it down. And then after taking some time and reflecting and thinking about the resources you have, then begin to write next to that, how can you use that resource for the sake of the kingdom? If you, have a, if you have a spouse, do it with your spouse. If you, have a, if you have a kid, sit down with your kids. Kids can understand this. What a great exercise as a mom or a dad to sit down and to say, say, what are the resources you have? How can you use them for the sake of Jesus? 
begin to write those things down, to put them in your mind, and then keep that piece of paper, maybe put it somewhere where you'll see it on a regular basis. Remind yourself. We're to be prepared. First, by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and beginning that relationship with him. And second, only following that, God gives us salvation and he gives us the blessing of serving him. And he gives us the resources to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, you are good, you are gracious, you are holy, you are worthy of our worship. Lord, thank you for these words that you spoke 2,000 years ago. Thank you that we can read them, that your spirit can work in our hearts and our minds. 